Well, welcome to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Sorry, we're a couple minutes behind here. We were just enjoying some great fellowship and uh, wanted to just uh, get started here. Uh, a couple quick announcements, and then we're looking forward to what we've got to cover uh, tonight as we finish up this look at how to read and understand uh, the Bible. So, uh, as usual, always a lot going on with Not By Works Ministries. We were back in the saddle again yesterday with Christian Underground News Network, which is my standing Tuesday podcast. I'm a guest on their show every Tuesday. I missed the last two, two Tuesdays because the first one I was traveling home from Wisconsin, and then last week I was uh, recovering from the uh, appendectomy. But man, it was so great to be back with Curtis and Pastor uh, Chamberlain there on that show. And our topic yesterday that they chose was Satan's obsequious sycophants. And it turned out to be quite a great discussion. I know you'll enjoy listening to it. So it's posted uh, at notbyworks.org or anywhere that not uh, that you listen to podcasts, just search for Not By Works Ministries. And then I think we mentioned uh, Sunday that this weekend was the Tulsa conference. And thankfully, I was able to deliver my two messages remotely uh, because I wasn't able to drive yet after the surgery. And so the first of those was whose fingerprints are on the founding of America. And the second one was Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. And uh, getting lots of great feedback from those. If you haven't watched the videos, those are actual videos. Or you can listen to the podcast, either one, whatever uh, you desire. Uh, I encourage you to do so because they really have some good information there and a good uh, perspective, I think, on what's going on over there. And then, of course, um, Jan Markell uh, aired her interview uh, on uh, Understanding the Times Radio all weekend. The way she does it, she does one interview a week. Uh, it's a one-hour interview, and then it airs Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so uh, this interview is still the latest interview until Friday when her next guest, she'll air that interview. Uh, so you can check that out. It's at her website or at notbyworks.org. And then, uh, of course, I, I, I don't want to over, do overkill with this book, but I got to tell you, if you've not gotten this book, if you've not read it, you need to get it because the information in it is absolutely critical. The Lord is using it. We're getting inundated with the requests and with questions and, and reorders and things like that. And uh, it's just because uh, this topic is so timely right now. I mean, it is, uh, it is like snatched from the headlines. So I encourage you to uh, check that out at spiritoftheantichrist.org, or you can pick one up here in the lobby if you're at, at Plum Creek. And then finally, this uh, next week, we're going to start a whole new uh, uh, series, a new topic. Uh, you know, we kind of shift back and forth between different topics, and uh, we're going to shift back into the direction of the doctrine of salvation, God's grace, and what it means to be saved. And so uh, we're going to uh, talk about what is Calvinism and is it biblical? Now, a lot of people know the term Calvinism, but they really can't define it. So we want to uh, define it in the terms of those that consider themselves Calvinists, use their own words, and we're just going to methodically go through the five major points of Calvinism and see what the Scripture uh, says. So this is your chance to really, I think, uh, if you haven't already, educate yourself on this uh, cutting-edge topic it's something that is gaining steam over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, it's, there are many churches that are passionately Calvinistic and promoting Calvinism. So you, you owe it to yourself to be familiar with that. And it'll engender some great discussion about the, the freeness of salvation, what it means to be saved, what it means to believe, how we get saved, assurance, eternal security, 
free will versus God's sovereignty, all of those related topics uh, that always come up when you talk about salvation. So for tonight, <clears throat> I just kind of want to give you the opportunity to ask questions. We've got one more little segment of information that I want to go over quickly, and then I want to spend the rest of our time talking about Bible study resources. And I've got some uh, handouts here. I'll go ahead and give them to you that we'll go over. This is kind of a summary sheet to, to, to leave you with something that uh, you, can, you can put in your file and have available if you want to uh, further your, your study. So we'll go over that here at the end. But uh, as we look back over the 24 weeks, we started by basically saying when you sit down to open your Bible and start reading it, what is your method? What is your methodology? In other words, not every Bible study method is created equal. If you were to look at the you know, Benny Hinn methodology or the Joyce Meyer methodology or the, you know, uh, uh, the guy from Houston, uh, his name escapes me, but who, who's that? Joel. Joel Osteen methodology or, you know, uh, everyone's method is a little bit different. And so we believe there's only one proper way to accurately handle the Word of God, and that's called the literal, grammatical, historical method of Bible study. And by literal, grammatical, historical, each one of those words has very important meaning. It means, first of all, that the Bible is intended to be taken literally. Literally means in its plain, normal, natural sense, that we're not looking for some secret, you know, cryptic meaning hidden between the lines on the page, or we're not looking for some mystical goosebump meaning. We're not trying to divine the, the meaning of the text in, in the cloud formations or a bowl of spaghetti. We're actually just letting the words on the page speak for themselves. That when the quill hit the sheepskin, God, the creator of the universe, intended to communicate something to his creation. And it's not complicated when you study it in its literal uh, method. Grammatical, that simply means that the Bible was written uh, using normal rules of grammar and syntax. Originally, that was in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Uh, toward the end of the Old Testament, there are certain portions that are written in Aramaic during the Babylonian exile. And then the entire New Testament is written in Greek. So the original text of Scripture was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And those languages, like all languages, have grammatical rules. They have syntax. There's, you know, subjects and nouns and objects and predicates and so forth. And so when studying the Bible, because we believe in a literal methodology, because we believe the words are intended to communicate something, we want to be sensitive to grammar. And then the third point was historical. So when you hear LGH, Bible study method, that stands for literal grammatical historical. And historical just means that we take into account the historical setting, that words are to be understood in the times in which they were used. So words obviously change uh, nuances over time, and that's true in any language. And so uh, when we do word studies, we want to look at them in that time frame and see how else this word is used elsewhere and we also want to consider the historical setting when looking at idioms and figures of speech and parables and other things that are inherently connected to that day and that culture so obviously you see this a lot in the hebrew old testament with the jewish culture you see it in the first century greco-roman culture and so all of that is uh you know important to keep in mind and really the lgh method is the proper method for interpreting any book not just the Bible. 
you know, if the Lord tarries his coming and 500 years from now, somebody digs up some of my notes or something, uh, I would hope that they would rather than try to discern what I really meant or what my secret meaning was, they would just simply look at the, the culture and the times and the historical setting of the year 2022 in the, you know, America and English language, and they would begin to piece together what my you know, notes meant. And so uh, LGH is really the only proper, uh, proper method. So when you sit down to study the Bible, you want to not you know, pray for some mystical sense. You want to pray that you'll be able to understand uh, the words on the page. Now, obviously, uh, words are not, some sentences are easier to understand than others. You know, even Peter remarked in his writings in the New Testament that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. So, but that just because it's difficult sometimes to understand doesn't mean, you know, that it's uh, impossible or that the original meaning cannot be found. It can be found. It's just a matter of digging deeper and doing the, doing the homework. Um, my uh, daughter, uh, Bethany, was going to fix a, a, a video projector that we have at home that had started spotting on the screen. And I, we had already cleaned it once some time ago, and I knew that the instructions... Uh, were in there to how to do it. So I gave her the instructions and the little cleaning kit, and I, but I remarked, it's going to be difficult to follow the instructions because it was like someone from another country wrote them in English, and they were very not very good at English. So it's, it's very difficult to understand. So, but, you know, if you piece it together and you pay attention and you, you know, look at the diagrams and stuff, you can figure it out. And the same thing is true with Scripture, that uh, I'm not suggesting that reading the Bible is like reading a Dr. Seuss book, I mean, it's, it's pretty, some of it's pretty heady stuff. Paul uses big words, and when we translate those words into English, we use big words. And some of the words in the Old Testament in English are translations of very unique, uh, you know, words in the Hebrew language and so forth. But that's what Bible study tools are for, and we're going to go over that at the end of our session tonight. I'm going to make some suggestions for you for Bible study tools. But the big picture is to remember that God's word is his way of saying, here I am, look at me. It is indeed the word of God. 3,800 times the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. So it is a unique book. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. When we open the Bible, uh, these, uh, even though the language and the rules of understanding language are universal and should be standard, the nature of what we're reading is in a class by itself. It's the only book that's living and active, that it, as Howard Hendricks used to say, when you read the Bible, it's doing something to you. You read any other book on the planet, you're doing something to it. Uh, my books might give you information, they might uh, educate you, they might get you to think about things you've never thought about, but they're not going to inherently change your life the way the Spirit of God can through the Word of God, because it's the only book uh, that can can do that. So, um, so then we talked about the five steps in the Bible study process. I won't reiterate this again because I did that last week uh, remotely. I think it was last week. No. Anyway, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. Or no, it wasn't last week. <laughs> anyway, if you go to the website and click on midweek Bible study, it's the video right before this one. So whatever that was, I don't even remember. But uh, since it wasn't last week, I will at least mention them. So uh, we said that the Bible study process obviously starts with the Bible. A lot of times today, especially in Western American culture, Bible study starts with a shrink wrap kit with booklets and, you know, 
fill-in-the-blank things and a video that you watch. And, all, and somewhere, if you look close in there, you can find the Bible. But that's not Bible study. Bible study begins with the Bible. And so you open it, like I showed you a moment ago, and then you study it in its literal grammatical historical context. Then, but the second step is to begin to uh, cross-reference or synthesize one part of Scripture with another. Because although the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in three different continents uh, by 40 different human authors in three different languages, it is one unit. And it tells an incredible story of, of, with, with uh, supernatural continuity from Genesis to Revelation. And that's because it has one divine author, capital A, God, even though it has 40 human authors. And so you want to begin to then link Scripture with Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture. That's what we call uh, cross-referencing. And then once you've done that, and if you've done it sufficiently, you'll be able to formulate some conclusions. For example, what does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about healing? What does the Bible say about forgiveness? What does the Bible say about um, prayer? And, and you can formulate your belief statements, or what we often call a doctrinal statement, and, and write down, hey, this is what God's Word says. So by the time you get to step three, you've really accomplished the meaning. You've, you've been able, through proper Bible study, to uncover the meaning. Uh, and by the way, if at step three you're formulating a doctrinal statement, what's the difference between, and I asked this way back at the beginning, so some of you may remember, but what's the difference between theology and doctrine? A lot of people use those words interchangeably, but they're not. They're, there's a correlation, but they're different. So, so theology is the study of God. Doctrine is teaching. That's part of it. Theology, technically speaking, means the study of God or uh, a word about God. Logos, word, theos, God. Theology is a word about God. But in, in, the, in the systematic sense or the discipline, theology is a process. So it's the study. It's a process of of studying the word and studying other truth claims and running them through the grid of scripture and and it's an ongoing process so we're all theologians my, my mentor charles ryrie said theology is thinking about god and articulating those thoughts in some manner that's at its root level that's what theology is so you can you know you can be a theologian by trade you know uh, I'm a theologian, and my PhD is in theology. I teach and study, and that's what my passion is and what God's called me to do. But every believer is a theologian because we're studying about, about God. But the key difference between theology and doctrine is that theology is a process. D doctrine is a product. Doctrine is the conclusion. Doctrine is one, what, what you've concluded and written down. So that's why if you go to Christian organizations or you know, not as many anymore, but in, in, it should be all churches. You can go to their website and say, click here for our doctrinal statement. And it's a summary statement of their beliefs. How did they get to those beliefs? Through the process of theology, theologizing, studying the Word of God, thinking about what God has revealed about Himself, correlating the, the options. So really, and I've taught this in theology classes, this same chart that you see on the screen can be called five steps in the theology process because it's the same thing but by the time you get to step three you've formulated your doctrinal statement but then the pro process doesn't end there you've got to go on and apply it and so these final two steps are the application phase 
one of which is to evaluate what the world is saying about everything, about gender, about sanctity of life, about you name it, and compare it to what you've concluded at step three. And then you either reject it if it violates God's word or you accept it. Uh, but the, the crowning step in the process is personal application. Because remember, the goal of Bible study is a changed life. It's not just to get smarter or to, uh, you know, win Bible trivia games. The goal of Bible study is to change your life. So as we read the Word of God and study the Word of God and apply it to our lives over a lifetime, we become, you know, stronger in our faith and we become conformed to the image of Christ and we become mature believers. Doesn't mean we ever reach perfection. We can't do that as long as we're confined to this body under the curse of sin. But once this mortal puts on immortality and we are glorified, then of course sin will be no more. But we can uh, grow in our faith, grow in our understanding of God, and, and become mature. So any questions about that before we move on? Okay, so we've been going through uh, the 24 rules of interpretation. In fact, we've gone through them. And uh, if you missed any of those sessions, you can always go back and watch the videos. But one section that, that we did not zero in on that I want to be sure we do before we close out this study is the idea of uh, how to interpret biblical uh, narratives. Biblical narratives. So 10 principles. Uh, remember the 20th, uh, the 20th rule of the 24 was historical facts or events become symbols of spiritual truths only if the scriptures designate them so. What do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is people are, all of us are prone to take the historical narrative portions of scripture. And so let's go back and see what we mean by that. Remember we talked about the different genres of scripture. The historical narratives in the Old Testament are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. In a manner of speaking, the books of Moses are also historical, but they're also a sort of a unique kind of history, just as the Gospels are historical, but they're, strictly speaking, a Gospel narrative, a little bit different. But the only pure historical narratives, which are sort of blow-by-blow blow telling you what happened, are uh, the Old Testament historical books and then Acts in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And so uh, that's what we mean by historical narrative. And what we're, we're, we have a tendency to do when we read that is to sort of spiritualize the text. And we sort of see symbols there that really aren't there. And uh, the example that I've used many times is uh, the story of uh, uh, Joseph and uh, Potiphar's wife. And by the way, in my uh, video, How to Misinterpret the Bible, I actually give several more examples of this kind of allegorizing. But it's very easy to do with the Old Testament. So you'll hear preachers preach from the story in Genesis about uh, Potiphar's wife tempting Joseph course Joseph fled and they'll turn that whole account into a message where the meaning of the passage is how to avoid adultery well that's what happened but that's not the meaning of why that's there in that story uh, because we could just as easily take any other detail from that story and and allegorize it and, and rise it to some principle level like I could say you know, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis, you know, 28 or whatever it is, and let's talk about Joseph and Potiphar. Now, what this means is you should never work for an Egyptian, right? I mean, wasn't that part of the story, right? So, so you, 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 you know, people have a tendency to really elevate minute details or even prominent details in the story and spiritualize them. 
And these pr 10 principles that I'm about to give you will, I think, help us more rightly divide the word when we're dealing with historical principles. First of all, number one, a narrative usually does not teach a doctrine directly. Where do we get our doctrine, our, our, you know, in, our uh, timeless principles from Scripture, usually? What, what portion of Scripture? Epistles, right? The epistles are just very plainly, like, like a legal argument, outlining what we should believe in the present church age. Uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament is very emphatically and clearly. Proverbs, for example, giving principles. Uh, a narrative is typically illustrating principles that are taught elsewhere. In fact, that's the next point. But it's not necessarily directly teaching a doctrine. Now, sometimes it does, because if within the narrative you have a situation where God, for example, is speaking to someone, obviously God is infallible, he's immutable, what he says is true. But, you know, when, when Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife, that's not a principle. We can't principalize that and say, okay, well, it's okay to do this sometimes, or, you know, we can't draw principles that are not explicitly stated in the text is my point so narratives are there to give us a picture of what god has done throughout history how he's interacted with mankind sometimes uh to give us you know doctrine in the midst of it but our our primary source for doctrine would be the epistles and wisdom literature and things like that um yeah So the question is, uh, in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, when they were killed, there's no doctrine. So what did, what did we learn from Ananias and Sapphira's example? Don't lie. Okay. Don't does, lie that, does that passage teach us not to lie to God? Or does the Bible tell us plainly elsewhere, don't lie to God? Right. So the doctrine is where it's explicitly taught. The account in Acts illustrates why that's bad. So another way to look at it is to ask yourself, if that's all we had, could we be comfortable saying that universally at all times it's always wrong to, not, to lie to God? Now you have to come at it with a blank slate because we know it is because the Bible teaches it is. But if that's all you read was that one, I think it's seven or eight verses in Acts chapter 5, you had nothing else, would you be able to confidently conclude that that's always wrong? No. All, all you could say is, in that case, God judged them harshly because they lied. So, we can. I'm not suggesting we can't learn. The whole Bible we can learn. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is profitable and, and useful for training us up in righteousness. And it's all inspired. It's all the infallible Word of God. But doctrine is a specific uh, statement of principle about God that we should follow. And one of those is don't lie to God. Ananias and Sapphira perfectly illustrate that. Yeah. What's the definition of propositional? So just meaning by decree, by, by declaration, as opposed by implication. So that's why I asked, you know, Judy, what does it teach us? And she rightly said, don't lie to God, but that teaching is by implication, not propositional. There's nothing in there that says, thus saith the Lord, do not lie to God. We see 
uh, who was it? P- uh, Peter, I think, saying, you have not lied to God but the Holy Spirit. And, so, and we see Luke telling us that that's what they did. So we see it, that sin in action illustrated, but, it's, so, but we can make the conclusion that we do based on implication, not, not declaration. And so that's what we mean by propositional truth. And so that's why, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, uh, but I think one of these principles that I wrote down talks about before you principalize something, make sure you can back it up with a scripture elsewhere. And usually you can, because scripture best interprets itself. It's called the analogy of faith. So it's, it's you know, like, for example, if I was going to teach how to avoid adultery, I would start with, you know, the Ten Commandments. Then I would start with Paul's teaching about flee youthful lusts and, you know, all the, these direct propositional statements. And then I might go to Genesis to bring in an example of a godly person who followed God's principle and succeeded, fleeing youthful lust. And then I might go to, you know, Second uh, Samuel and look at David and, and as an example of one who didn't follow God's principle and consequently committed adultery. Both of those are narrative passages that illustrate the doctrine, but I'm not going to use that as my primary text to then declare it in the exhortative phase of, of communicating biblical truth to say, see, thus saith the Lord, you know, don't commit adultery. That's taught clearly in Scripture. Uh, so most of the, the clear teaching that we get from narrative literature is, is biblical. We just need to be sure we keep it in the right category and make sure that that's Ill- because otherwise what happens is people will take illustrations from Acts, especially in the New Testament, uh, and draw truths that are, are not there, you know, uh, and they'll, they'll make them uh, absolutes. And they don't have another verse to back it up, and that's where that's where you've crossed the line. So usually it's no harm, no foul. I mean, we're pretty. If you're a good student of Scripture, you're going to be, re, be able to read the narratives. You're going to come away with a correct takeaway. You know, adultery bad. I mean, that's a pretty clear one. Uh, but uh, but sometimes people will take a minute. You know, the, the per, classic example is the prayer of Jabez. You know. And by the way, I'm not criticizing Wilkinson. I know him. I've, I've worked with him before. I think highly of him, but he, he missed the boat on that one. I'm sorry. He took an obscure little prayer, or maybe a better example, so we can criticize someone outside the dispensational camp. That's always more fun. would be uh, uh, Jonathan Kahn and uh, the, Sh- the Shemitah. You know. Both are examples of taking an obscure little passing reference to something and making this huge principle out of it, writing a whole book about it, and telling everybody this is how you should live your life. And I have I did a whole series on the uh, blood moons and the Shemitah. I called it blood moon and Shemitah hysteria several years ago. You can probably still find it. Um, in which I explained that the Shemitah is just a Jewish agricultural law. I mean, it's not prophetic. Nothing in there prophetic about that. And the prayer of Jabez is it's not some promise of God that if we do this very thing, we're going to get this and this and that. So that's, those are examples of, I think, violating this principle in a detrimental way. But again, to say that Joseph, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife teaches us that you know, adultery is, is not good, I mean, okay, it, it's, it's semantics. It illustrates it. What really teaches it directly, propositionally, is some of these other passages. Make sense? So then number three is narratives record what happened. 
That's their nature. Not necessarily what should have happened or what ought to happen every time. Therefore, and this is kind of saying the same thing another way, not every narrative has an individual identifiable moral of the story. And, and we love to do that. You know, preachers especially love to... Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you, it is easier to preach narrative portions of Scripture than any other portion, because you know you just—they're—they're they're fun, they're, they're exciting, they read like a Hollywood script a lot of the times, and you can sort of, you know, say, so here's why you shouldn't do this, or here's what happens when you do this, and so forth. And uh, but the problem is, unless you can validate that by comparing Scripture with Scripture and come up with a, a clear propositional statement, you know, you may you may be right, you may be wrong. So, um, you know, a lot of people will say they'll point to Abraham and the flawed man that he was, and they'll, especially skeptics or critics of Scripture and, and of Christians, and they'll say, you know, see, look at Abraham, and, and, you know, see what a terrible man he was, and he's your hero. And this understanding narrative literature gives us the proper response to that, which is, yeah, we know. <laughs> so what? God doesn't condone that. God doesn't, you know, applaud him for some of the things that he does. He's just telling us what happened. That's the nature of narrative literature. He's telling us what happened. And uh, not everything is good uh, or supposed to be that way. It's just a reality. Um, and, and by the way, what's interesting is in the New Testament, in the epistles, you know, often within a letter that, you know, say Paul or Peter or James or someone is writing, they will tell real-time events, like I'm thinking, say, of Galatians, where Paul talks about going up to Arabia, and then when he was in Jerusalem and Peter came and, and he, uh, he equivocated on the nature of grace, remember, and he, he, was, uh, he wouldn't sit with uh, the people that were non-circumcised or whatever um, that that's that's historical too and so as we talked about when we went over the genre remember we did the LSD uh, class exercise and we kind of talked about different genres uh, while the Bible as a whole can be kind of broken up into different sections within each section there can be multiple genres at different times so poetry well there are lots of places in the historical section of the Old Testament where the children of Israel break out into song or Moses sings a song and write, you know that's poetic within the narrative and the same thing is true in uh, epistolary literature you know uh, in the midst of uh, telling us what to believe and how to behave and what the doctrine is uh, sometimes they'll tell personal stories and we want to be careful not to principalize those unless the author himself is principalizing those uh, so again, what people do in narratives is not necessarily a good example for us. Uh, most of the characters and actions of the, of the Old Testament narratives in particular are far from perfect. And, and really, you know, New Testament too, right? I mean, think of Peter. Peter was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, overreacting. Um, so, uh, you know, we need to kind of keep these principles in mind. Uh, here's another important one. We're not always told at the end of a narrative whether what happened was good or bad. We are expected to be able to judge that based on what God has taught us 
directly and categorically elsewhere in the scripture. Right? And sometimes that can be tricky. You know. And I think we need to have that sort of sensitivity to comparing scripture with scripture. That's what theology is all about. It's that process. But I can remember having a a uh, good dialogue with uh, a, a, another academician one time when I was teaching full time, who, in my opinion, because he had not really accurately done this, was really locked into a, a black or white understanding of uh, lying. And I think I talked about this in a Sunday sermon one time. It's kind of flashing back to my mind. So if, if I did, forgive me for the repetition. But, you know, not everything, it's not always a sin to say something that you know to be wrong. And that should be self-evident. So it comes down to definite, what is lie, what's the definition of a lie? I mean, in, in the context was Rahab the harlot lying about the spies. Was she sinning? According to my friend, yes. And so, but no, I don't think so. Uh, am I you know, is, is, the, is the quarterback of the football team sinning against a holy God when he tries to draw the, the defense off sides or when they do a fake punt or when they have a playbook? I mean, should, they, should both teams just meet at midfield before the game and hand each other their playbook? <laughs> or what about in war? Should we just hand over our, all of our secrets to the Chinese right now? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Should we? No. Have we? Yeah, probably. So, uh, but uh, you see my point. So we have to have biblical definitions of, of these things. Uh, so, you know, that goes to several Old Testament narratives where clearly, you know, deception, and I, I define deception as always wrong, so that's probably the, the best, not the best word, but, you know, when Abraham or the, uh, the spies or whatever with Rahab, we're, we're giving misinformation. If a, if a mass murderer is on the loose and you hide your kids in the closet and he bursts through the door and says, where's your kids? Or, or better example, are your kids in the closet? Are you sinning against the Holy God if you say no? Of course not. I mean, it's absurd, right? So lying is when you're deceitful with an immoral intent or a personal gain of some in, in, in immoral sense, right? If you know, if you have a surprise party for your spouse, you know, and you say, uh, you know, "Are you going to throw me a surprise party?" No, no, no. Just go out and run to the grocery store. This isn't a. You know, I'm not going to do anything. And then they come back and surprise you. Are they going to accuse you of lying to you? Of course not. Lying is a very serious offense to holy God. It's it's mentioned twice in the seven deadly sins. So we got to be careful about how we do that but if you don't understand narrative literature and really accurately define your terms theologically and doctrinally then you're left with this zero-sum game where anytime you knowingly say something wrong you have committed a sin do you see the problem uh, and then number seven all narratives are selective and incomplete not all the relevant details are always given what does appear in the narrative is everything that God thought important for us to know and through the inspired author. So this is especially true of gospel literature, which again is a subset of narratives. Remember, gospel literature 
is when the author takes selected events from the life and ministry of Christ and puts them together in, in a structure to make a theological point. So Matthew arranges his material with a targeted audience of Israel to prove that, it, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Mark arranges his material with a primary audience of the Romans to talk about the suffering servant. Luke arranges his material to a Gentile audience to prove that, that, that Jesus is the Son of Man, okay? the, uh, the human. You know, that's why Luke's narrative has far more details about the humanity of Christ than any other. John's Gospel is in a class by itself. Ninety-something percent of the information in John's Gospel is not included in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And it's the Gospel of Belief. It's, he tells us why he put his Gospel together in chapter 20. It's that you know, Jesus did many other things, but these are written in this book, the Gospel of John, that you might believe uh, that Jesus is the, the Son of God. So uh, the Gospels in particular are leaving things out. And I think we talked about, back when we went over the doctrine of in inerrancy, how a lot of skeptics will look at parallel accounts from the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the same event, and they'll say, see, the Bible has errors in it because the details are different. Well, yeah, the details are different, but they're not contradictory. You know, one writer might say there was a person standing off to the side. The other one says there was two people standing off. He didn't say there was only one person. He just says there was one. He was focused on that one person. So all of these alleged contradictions, if you look carefully, are not contradictions at all. They're just different perspectives. It's the same thing is true of eyewitnesses. You know, two or three eyewitnesses, and you know this, being in law enforcement, you know, uh, eyewitnesses often see things from a different perspective. You know, now obviously in the case of eyewitnesses, they could be mistaken because you know eyewitnesses missee things. In the case of God's word, God's never mistaken. And so if we assume the absolute truth of both accounts and you lay them on top of each other, they don't contradict. They complement one another. And so, um, you know, not everything is always there because it's, it's, this isn't a blow. It's not like God had a camera running and is recording 60 seconds of every minute of every hour of every day. They're putting pieces uh, together. Uh, narratives are not written to answer all of our theological questions. Narratives have particular, specific, limited purposes and deal with certain issues, leaving others to be dealt with elsewhere in other ways. That's especially important to understand with the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, because, and the Gospels. As I said, if you, if you start to read, say, Matthew, and you don't understand the Jewish nature of it and why he structured it the way he did, I mean, the Gospels, unlike narrative literature, narrative is very strictly, tightly chronological. Gospels are generally chronological, but they're just giving these little what's called pericopes or snippets of information, and they're arranging them to make a point. So Matthew, for example, the very first thing out of the chute after Jesus' Galilean uh, ministry, after the temptation in chapter 4, is, uh, and he begins the Galilean ministry, is chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we know from comparing Scripture to Scripture and sort of piecing together that life and ministry of Christ for three and a half years, that the Sermon on the Mount probably happened about a year into his ministry. And that's where the other accounts have it. But that's not wrong. That's the nature of gospel literature. He's not setting it off or passing it off as being strictly chronological. This, then this, then this, then this. That's why each little perkery will begin with things like, you know, you know, one time or there once was a time or that kind of, that kind of stuff, right? But they're generally 
chronological. They start with the birth narrative. They end with the passion narrative. But they're not, they're, they're different. So that's why we put them in their own category. Narratives may teach either explicitly, I, I said this earlier, by clearly stating something or implicitly by implying something without uh, actually stating it. Uh, so long as that, you know, what's implied is validated elsewhere. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I talked about this so we kind of get what that's saying, is that if within the narrative, you know, God says, I am the Lord and I do not lie. Well, that's pretty emphatic, pretty propositional, even though it happens within a conversation between God and, you know, whoever it might be. Um, and then finally, we want to remember that God is the hero of all biblical narratives because God is the hero of his word. So, you know, whatever else is going on in the narrative, it's God's way of telling us something about his grand meta-narrative of all of human history, starting with creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and ultimately coming full circle back to a recreated earth without the presence of sin. So God is the hero of all biblical narratives. All right, any question about those before we move on to the final section? Yeah. I didn't get anything down to number five. You didn't get anything down for number five, so what you're trying to say without saying it, it's not propositional, I'm, in, I'm getting this by implication, is that I was going too fast. Okay. Most of the characters and actions in the Old Testament narratives are far from perfect. And, that's, and I mentioned that that's true of the New Testament, too. <clears throat> okay. So let's close out uh, this study. Uh, it's, it's been 24 sessions now, and uh, we've looked at a lot of material. But I want to give you some resources in your hands to kind of uh, help you as you study on your own. So if you want to pull out that sheet, I'm just going to put on the screen what is on the handout that I've given you. Uh, if those of you listening by live stream or watching the video at a later time, uh, if you'd like me to email you this uh, two-page uh, sheet on Bible study resources, I'm happy to do that. Just shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. Uh, a couple of caveats first, though. Uh, this is just my personal suggestions. It's by no means comprehensive. If there's something in a category here that's not on this list, it doesn't mean I'm not recommending it just means I'm not thinking about it. I did this just from my head and, you know, tools that I've used through the years that I found helpful. Um, I'm quite certain that there are many, many, many more in each of these categories that, that can be helpful. But this is just my personal suggestions, if you want to call it that. And before we get to actual resource tools, let's talk about English Bible translations. Uh, as you know, I am a New King James guy. I believe the New King James English translation is the best translation technique and also reflects the original documents the best. Um, my second choice for study, we're talking about for study now, would be the King James. They're very similar. It's just that the New King James uh, modernizes some of the words a little bit and doesn't use that Elizabethan English. Uh, and then technically... The New King James is based on a different manuscript family, the majority text. And I won't rehash all that, but we talked about in a previous lesson. The King James is based on the Textus Receptus, uh, you know, which is a very narrow uh, 
selection of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament put together by Erasmus in the what 1500s, I think. And it's known, it's known to have some issues, the Textus Receptus. There are certain portions, a little word or two here or there, that are only found in Erasmus's text in the 1500s. So we know that was kind of inserted. Um, so there's some minor differences between the two, but they're substantially the same. And I'm a majority text advocate, so this is why I recommend the New King James. Um, I also think for study, the New American Standard is really good. Uh, the only uh, thing that I disagree with for their translators is that they translated based on the critical text, not the majority text. So you're going to see some places in the New American Standard where verses are put in, in the New Testament I'm talking about, are put in brackets, and then there'll be a note that says, you know, the, the oldest manuscripts don't have this verse. Uh, but at least they put it in, and, and in most cases, I think that is part of the inspired text. Um, and the, the King James, New King James and King James are just going to put them in there. Uh, but again, the, the premise of those who follow the critical text is that whatever manuscripts is oldest are oldest are probably the original. I disagree, as do a lot of scholars. Uh, I think whatever we have the most of is probably the original. So, for example, and, and by the way, I think this goes without saying, but the issue is we don't have a, an encased-in-glass original autograph of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for example, the very first one he wrote. That one that he wrote has long since disintegrated. What we have are scribal copies. And we believe that the same God who inspired the writers of Scripture also preserved the original writings in all of these manuscripts. And we have six, 7,000 manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament. Some of them, a very few, date as old as the late second, you know, uh, early second century, you know, uh, 100s, early 100s. Um, but many, most of them are the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Um, so when you have, say, a, a section of, let's just r randomly uh, pick a book, a section of Ephesians. This is all made up. But let's say you have a certain two sentences from Ephesians. And you have 20 manuscripts that have that section. But 18 of them uh, have it written one way with maybe a certain word order, an insertion of a word or something. And two of them are slightly different. Well, if the two that are slightly different are older, like they're from the 2nd or 3rd century, the New American Standard is going to say that's probably the original. If they're newer, the 18, the 18 of them, then the King James and New King James are going to say this is probably the original because God is most likely to preserve the original in the majority of the text. Now, that's an oversimplification, and I've studied and taught textual criticism for for years, so those that might be listening to this that know a lot about it may think, oh, you've totally... Uh, glossed over it. Well, that's not. We're not here to study textual criticism. There are exceptions. Not every. Not that's not a hard, fast rule that whatever we have the most of is automatically the original. But in general, that's the the principle that we believe. Uh, so for that reason, the New American Standard puts some passages in brackets and suggests that the oldest manuscripts don't have this. And and they're correct, but that doesn't mean it's still not part of the Bible. So that's for study. The big issue, I wouldn't get too bogged down in manuscript families. The issue is, how do you translate the Bible? And it should be a word-for-word, -word, formal equivalent translation, and all of these do that and do it well. Uh, if you want to study for devotional reading, 
Then you could get into more paraphrastic versions that uh, tend to translate thought for thought. Uh, and uh, there, all of the uh, every other English version is more thought for thought. ESV, Holman, New Living, all of them. They're more paraphrastic. And if you just read the front matter of those Bibles, you'll see that. Yeah. Where would you put the Amplified Bible? The Amplified Bible is, is more formal, uh, and it's actually mostly really good, but there are some places where, the, where it tries to define the words where I think it kind of is, is not always reliable. But I would, it would definitely be more in this category than the paraphrastic. So the big thing to remember is the Bible wasn't written in English. So God did not inspire the, 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 the you know, 50 men from King James that did the 1611 version. Okay. Uh, what was inspired is the original text. And you know, we now have translations of it. So we have Spanish, Russian, Ukrainian Bibles, English Bibles, you name it. And, and that's why even though, you know, Anybody can study the Bible in their language. It's at least important to recognize as you're reading it that this is a translation. And sometimes things don't pass through a translation. The illustration that I used um, when we were talking about this several months ago or a couple months ago was, you know, in the NIV, when it's in the Old Testament Hebrew talking about anger, it's going to say the king got angry. In, but that, that expression in Hebrew is often expressed through a Hebrew idiom of the nostrils flaring. So the King James, for example, will say the king's nostrils flare, which that's what the text said when the quill hit the sheepskin. And when I'm studying scripture, I want to know what it says because through proper Bible study method and the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to arrive at the correct meaning. The paraphrastic versions circumvent that. And if they're right, okay, no harm, no foul. In that case, yeah, the king got angry. But sometimes they're not right. And that's where you have a problem. So, uh, so those are just my, that's kind of where I camp out. Doesn't mean the other versions are bad or you shouldn't use them. Uh, they all have valid, uh, I even quote from them sometimes. You've seen in sermons and stuff. Uh, study Bibles. People often ask me about study Bibles. These are the four that I think are uh, really should be in everyone's library. Uh, number four there is not technically a, a, a study Bible. It's a reference Bible. And by the way, there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially among the prophetic realm about Schofield. Schofield was a you know, turn of the 20th century, solid dispensational guy. He wasn't perfect. He might have had some connections and links to uh, you know, people that you know, we wish he didn't. But you know, I studied him extensively in my PhD program. We had to go back and read all of the Schofield notes in his first Bible, which was 1917, I think. And then we had to go back and read the revised Schofield notes, which John Walvoord revised and kind of see the changes. And, uh, and it's inter it was an interesting uh, study. It was lengthy, but it was interesting. Uh, so not suggesting he's perfect, but there's a lot of false conspiracies out there about Schofield being, you know, some kind of a Satan worshiper and all that. That is not true. Just that is absolutely uh, patently false. Um, but anyway, these are great ones. The, the NKJV Study Bible used to be called the Nelson Study Bible, and then it was sold and reprinted now as the NKJV Study Bible. I know the general editor of it, Earl Rodmacher, actually wrote the foreword to my first book 20 years ago. And a uh, great man of God. He's with the Lord now. And then several of the other editors within the New and Old Testament 
I, I had connections with them, either sat under their teaching or have heard them speak, those kinds of things. Uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, I was personal friends with Ryrie. It's an outstanding uh, resource. And then the Believer's Study Bible is another dispensational premillennial study Bible. It's uh, put out by the Southern Baptists, so it's going to be a little bit more lordship or Calvinistic in its understanding of the gospel. But it is pretty solid on its, in its literal overview of, of prophecy and where things are headed. These are some commentaries, just either single volume or two volume uh, commentaries. I think the Bible Knowledge Commentary should be in everybody's bookshelf. It was published by Dallas Theological Seminary. Each book of the Bible, the commentator is a different, either current or by now mostly former or uh, deceased Dallas Seminary professors. Um, Roy Zook was the general editor. Uh, he's with the Lord now too. Uh, uh, he was a professor of mine and he actually co-authored a book with me, uh, my book Freely by His Grace. One of the great privileges of my life was to work with, with him on that. Um, and then uh, the Believer's Bible Commentary uh, is another good solid dispensational one. Expositors is not necessarily purely dispensational, but most of the commentators are. But it's a really good commentary set. Uh, Word is a more critical commentary. It's going to be hit or miss on its overall theological perspective. Uh, and then Wycliffe. Uh, and you can see the others there. Just some good Bible dictionaries, too, that I highly recommend are Nelson's and the New Ungers. Uh, Atlases, the Moody Atlas of Bible Lands is, is really good, really high quality and detailed. Nelson's complete book of Bible maps and charts and the Hammond's Atlas of the Bible Lands is cheaper and, and, and a little smaller, but it's another good, good atlas. Uh, Old and New Testament background books, so these are really helpful. Remember the literal, grammatical, historical approach to the Bible. So sometimes we need to go back and look at the setting of these. So these would all be outstanding ones. For the New Testament, I actually like Everett F. Harrison's intro to the New Testament. Um, but they're all great, and I like R.K. Harrison's uh, Old Testament. But Ralph Gower has a good manners and customs of Bible times, and it's organized canonically. So if you're reading, a, say, in Joshua, and you come across a verse or a section that's got some obscure things, and you're saying, I wonder what was really going on there. You can go to New Manners and Customs of the Bible, go to that passage in Joshua, and more often than not, he'll have a section dealing with that, all about it. Bible handbooks uh, are kind of like uh, little Cliff's Notes versions of the Bible. They give you a quick summary and thematic overview of each book. Uh, Wilmington's is great. I'm going to recommend him on a, several things. Um, he's a really great, a great guy. I'm pretty sure he's with the Lord now. I don't want to put him there prematurely, but I didn't, I didn't look it up. But my guess would be he is. He's from Liberty University. Um, Haley's is another great one. Again, the New Unger's Bible Handbook, also by the same guy, Merrill Unger. He is with the Lord now. And then Airdman's. Bible Encyclopedias. Everybody ought to own Isby. I-S-B-E, everybody calls it ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's well over 100 years old, but it's, uh, it's pretty solid stuff. You know, just a good, if you want to look up a, a person or a topic or a thing in the encyclopedia, it'll give you a detailed entry about it based on what the Bible said about it. So if you look up Joseph, it's going to give you all the entries on Joseph, all the different people named Joseph and so forth. Baker's is another one. Word study books, these are really helpful. Some of you might be familiar with some of them. Zodiades is 
outstanding anything by him. I previously mentioned, and of course Vines as well is another standard. Uh, I previously mentioned Bullinger's figures of speech used in the Bible. It's another great one that you should have. Similar to that, and even broader and better, is A.T. Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament. Word pictures in the New Testament. Theologies. Now we're getting into my bailiwick here. Uh, the top two that I recommend, uh, and they're neck and neck. It's like a photo finish in my mind, but I would put Moody Handbook first, and that's Paul Enns. Even though Ryrie was my hero, uh, I think it's laid out a little bit better, and it's, uh, it's, it's just more detailed, a little bit longer. But theologies, of course, are organized by the, the classic ten categories of theology. Bible. God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Church, salvation, discipleship, uh, d angels, demons, man, or anthropology, eschatology, the end times, and so forth. And so these are all outstanding. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary and its first president, he has a classic eight-volume set that's worth having. It's obviously dated, so the language and stuff is going to be a little more academic-sounding than today, but uh, it's still worth having. And then you can see the other ones there. Church history. Uh, these are just some great church history books. Uh, well, Works of Josephus is a first—he was a first-century historian, so that's a translation into English, and it just kind of gives you some uh, supplemental information to go with what was going on in in the New Testament. Uh, but Philip Schaff is kind of the uh, the standard in that uh, in that realm. And then just a few other books that I think are uh, worth. Uh, having a topical Bible is helpful. I was meeting with someone earlier today who uses a topical Bible because let's say you want to study uh, anger or you want to study sad or sorrow or something. A topical Bible is going to be organized by category and then give you all the verses that relate to that or, or not all necessarily but a lot of them. Uh, another similar one is Roger's Thesaurus. Uh, a cross-reference book and the standard is the New Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. I use it all the time, almost every week in my preparation. So when you see me in my messages, you know, I start with the primary text and we go verse by verse and then I cross-reference to other verses. More often than not, I consulted Treasure of Scripture Knowledge, you know, to find some of those. Now, I've been doing this long enough that a lot of times cross-references just pop into my mind, but sometimes I'll want to do that step two of our Bible study process, comparing Scripture to Scripture. And New Treasure Scripture Knowledge is excellent for that. Another great book is Wilmington's Book of Bible Lists. Same Wilmington that we talked about a moment ago with the Guide to the Bible. Uh, and his Outline Bible. Uh, both of these are just nice little tools. Uh, you know, any of you that teach you know, from time to time or lead a Sunday school class, or you know, I'm thinking of you, Gary, either one of these would be outstanding, quick reference things. If you get a last-minute chance to teach, you can look up Wilmington's book of Bible lists and it'll say you know all the uh, you know I don't know messianic prophecies that would be a huge one but you know something like that in scripture and it's just interesting and then the outline Bible just goes from Genesis to Revelation through the Bible and gives you a nice little teachable outline you know that you can use in a pinch and then for Bible software highly recommend Logos Bible software uh, I've used it for since 1999, and I think many of you know I worked with them for nine and a half years as a uh, consultant and presenter. Um, I use it every day, most days, for multiple hours a day. It's always open on my computer. It's just where I do everything when I'm doing interviews. I've got it open. I can quickly look at 
passages and Greek words and things like that. So then the last thing, and it's not on the screen, is there any of those sheets left? Thank you. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, some recommended authors. Um, mo many of these are deceased. Um, and this, again, is by no means comprehensive. It's just kind of my top 30. Uh, and I'm certain that I've left some off that I have really benefited from through the years, and I apologize uh, to them. Uh, but I just wanted you to have that. So if you want to build your library of, of books, you know, these are some great authors you know, to have on your shelf. They're all solid, dispensational, pre-tribulation, premillennial uh, you know, scholars who understand the Bible and its literal, grammatical, historical uh, approach. The ones that are still living would be uh, Andy Woods, uh, great guy, highly recommend him. I've worked with him many, many times, uh, good friends. Tommy Ice, I worked with him a lot, and he wrote a chapter in my book, Freely by His Grace, for me. Uh, Randy Price, Arnie Fruchtenbaum, Ed Heinsen, uh, Chuck Swindoll, I assume is still living. Um, let's see, Mike Stallard, the middle column there, he was my mentor in my PhD program. I hope to get him to come speak here sometime. Love him to death. He taught me more than any single person theologically. Uh, let's see, all these others are with the Lord. Bob Leitner in the first column, he, I had him twice. I had him in my master's program and in my doctoral program and love him to death. He died not too long ago. Um, I would say uh, Chafer's uh, book on grace, Lewis Berry Chafer, is a must-read and a must-have. I would say, um, and he hasn't—he doesn't have a ton. He only has like, besides his eight-volume systematic theology, which is his magnum opus, he's only got, if I recall, about eight or ten books. I have them all. It's like salvation, uh, grace, uh, evangelism is one, which is really a book about prayer. Uh, Major Bible Themes, that's a great one by him. So anything by Chafer would be good. Uh, Walverd, um, he's got, uh, boy, he's got so many. Uh, his, his, his commentary on Revelation called The Revelation of Jesus Christ is outstanding. Um, he's got one on Jesus Christ our Lord, one on the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of lighter reading, uh, Chuck Swindoll's The Grace Awakening or si Simple Faith, both of those are powerful books, you know. And again, I'm not going to agree with all these guys on everything, uh, but I, I think his were good. Arnie Fruchtenbaum's Footsteps of the Messiah is, is great. Um, Bob Leitner, I'm going to recommend his book, uh, Oh man, what's it called? It's about the extent of the atonement. Uh, for it's called "For Whom Did Christ Die?" And as we get into our Calvinism study, I'm gonna. I think that's the best short paperback defense of unlimited atonement, which we believe the Bible teaches anywhere. And so I'm going to recommend his uh, book there. George N. H. Peters' uh, the "Theocratic Kingdom" is a three-volume set. That should, everybody should have that. I think I think you had that, didn't you? What, what book was it I saw when I was at y'all's house, Nat? Do you remember? Was it a Peter's book or anyway? J. Alva McLean's "The Greatness of the Kingdom," or Alva J. McLean, I should say, 
is another one that's great. Uh, and Andy Wood's uh, recent book, uh, The Coming Kingdom, is, is really good. Um, I like my book, What Lies Ahead, a little better, but I'm biased. I'm biased. But uh, so, yeah, that's a few of those. But any closing thoughts before we wrap up for tonight? Yes. A concordance? Yeah. yeah, so I didn't put that on there because now everything's digital. So you can, even if you don't own Bible software, you can go to Blue Letter Bible or whatever and you can just type in any word and it'll find every verse that uses it. So concordances basically are keyword searches for the Bible. But, but it's so much better than the print now because with Logos anyway, you can type in any word in any combination. Like I could type in love, hope, faith. And it's going to find every verse in the Bible that uses those three words. Now, of course, we're immediately thinking of 1 Corinthians 13, but there are others. Uh, you can type in, you know, you can use all kinds of Boolean search strings like this word, but not this. Or this word within so many verses of this word. You know, it's really fascinating. So you can, concordances are, print concordances are, somewhat obsolete but i say that knowing that if the lord tarries is coming we may be in a situation where there's no digital no computer no nothing and emp goes off so that's when you're going to want to pull that great big strong's concordance off the shelf and, and use it yeah is the bible code okay yeah it is that's uh what's the guy's name again same guy that wrote uh but yeah the bible code is i think uh I don't recommend it. I mean, it's it's been debunked, and you can sh you can show using mathematical algorithms that you can pretty much. I could probably make your great grandfather's name appear in scripture if I really tried hard enough. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't believe that's the way God communicated to us through mystical secret symbols. Yes. Uh, it's fascinating. It's really it's uh, entertaining. But I think it misses the mark in correctly handling the Word of God. Yeah. Are you familiar with Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, John Walbert's book, Every Prophecy in the Bible. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. 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 I've got it. I I don't pull it off the shelf very often because again I I've got seven thousand volumes in my digital library. All of these that I've mentioned, I have the same exact book digitally. So I just, it's, I can get to it faster, you know. Every now and then there's it's something about pulling a book off the shelf, sitting in a nice, comfortable chair and reading it, and I'll do that. But for study, you know, you don't get any extra years in heaven for doing it the slow way. So, you know, I can, I can just say, search all my Walvard books for his reference to transubstantiation, and boom, in two seconds, I've got it right in front of me. So, yeah, you do? Yeah. So my computer's a little faster. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I'm sure for, for, for you and I, we know what we mean, but for the rest of our group, tell, tell us what transubstantiation means. <laughs> when the train leads the station, I love it. I love it. I don't know why that word came to my mind. I was just trying to think of some obscure, you know, word. But, you know, it, it's pretty amazing how you can find it. Like, I can search, get this, I can search for every time... John MacArthur makes reference to uh, James 
And, that, and, and before you think, oh, that's okay, but that's not that big a deal. We're not talking just a standard word search. I'm not searching for J-A-M-E-S space 2 colon 14 in quotes as if that exact. It's with Logos Bible Software, they have tagged with metadata underneath every word on the page. So even if in the midst of his book, you know, you're reading a book and let's say the author is talking about in James chapter 2, this and this, and then he does this, and then he'll just put in parentheses V14. Because in the context, you know he's talking about James chapter 2. Even those are going to be caught. Or if it's James, J-A-M-E-S, or James, J-A-S, period. Doesn't matter. Every time he references any particular verse, I can find it just like that. So if I want to see how he handles a particular passage, usually incorrectly, I can, I can, I can find it. All right, yes. I've probably filibustered too long. I was just going to comment. Yeah. Yeah. So Nat's comment is a good one that the Strong's Concordance also uses the famous Strong's numbering system, which, in the absence of anything else, especially if like an end of the world scenario, that's going to be fantastic, and it served the, the body of Christ well for about a hundred years. But he wrote it in the late 19th century, and it is known to have errors in it because he did it all by hand. So he literally opened his Greek text, looked at a word, counted, then looked through every page to count the number of times that word appeared and then gave it a number, and it, it's fascinating. I mean, it's the most valuable, powerful work that got the lay body into the Greek. But today, all you need is a phone or a computer, and you call up a verse, you hover your finger over it, it instantly tells you the Greek word. And it's precise. It doesn't go Greek number English. It goes Greek English. So it cuts out the middleman. But still, Strong's numbering, a lot of people were raised on that, cut their teeth on it. They, they have the Strong's numbers memorized in some cases for certain Greek words. So I'm not just, I'm not uh, criticizing it. I'm just saying, you know, we, we have, there's, there's zero margin for error now in the age of digital technology because we've literally taken the exact Greek text, overlaid it with uh, the English, and we know, you know, so when I tell you when I'm speaking and I say this word's used X amount of times, you can take it to the bank. Depending on which manuscript, again, if you're a New American Standard or something, it might be every now and then a slight difference, but from the, at least from the Greek manuscript that I use, that's the case. Yeah. Where do you put this J.B. Hickson guy in? How come he's Well, these are just authors that I, you know, I personally benefit from, and uh, I don't know that I benefit from my writing because it's all already up here. <laughs> So I don't really have to read my books to remember. Sometimes I do to remember what I believe. I don't know. Okay, if we put him but on here? You, I don't mind if you put, put him on there. I, I agree with most of what he says. Yeah. So, yeah. He's at the top of the first page. Yeah, he's at the top of the first page. There you go. Recommended by JB. There you go. All right. Well, I hope this is helpful, and I'm really excited about our next study. I hope you'll let, spread the word, bring a friend. It's going to Knowing because we've already talked in the past about some doctrines related to salvation and done some studies on that when I first got here, and it always engendered some great dialogue. So I'm really expecting that to be the case uh, here. No timetable. Uh, in an ideal world, it'll take us right up to the fall, and then I've got something else planned starting in September. But we'll go where the Lord leads. So, all right. Well, thank you guys. Have a good rest of the night. Thanks, JD.